You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Exodus chapter 20, we are in the ninth commandment. If you've just kind of stumbled in today and this is your uh, first time at Stonegate, we have been in the middle of a set of sermons through the Ten Commandments and we are almost done. We're in the ninth commandment. And uh, just to kind of preface this, let's just think for a few minutes about words, which is what the ninth, you know, the ninth commandment is going to lead us to thinking about words and how we use words, um, the, the words that come out of our mouth. And let, let me just say a couple of, of comments about words. Number one, words are a precious gift from God. Now, w- w- words are so common that we don't often think about words that way. But words are a precious gift from God. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is like the God that we're made in in his image. God communicates, God talks. And part of what it means to be made in his image is we reflect God in that way, that, that we can talk like God. I love what John Stott, a really good theologian says. He says, cows can moo, dogs can bark, donkeys bray, pigs grunt, lambs bleat, lions roar, monkeys squill, and birds sing. But only human beings can speak. I mean, just think, I'm married to Laura. The fact that I can bend down on one knee and look at her in the eyes and say, Laura, I love you. Like, you don't even know how much I love you when I'm saying I love you. You are precious to me. What a gift that is, right? Words are one of the ways that we build intimacy and trust and depth of relationship with another person. Words are a precious gift from God. Can you imagine what life would be like if you had no ability to communicate? Can you imagine that? But, but God gifts us words to communicate. They're a gift from God. And, and words are not only a precious gift from God, but words are also a powerful gift from God. Words are, are powerful. And here's what's so tricky about words. Words are so common that the average man speaks 15,000 words a day, the average woman 25,000 words a day. Now there's a sermon right there, right? So we're going to pass that. We're just going to go right back. Not even going to stop there. 15,000 for men, 25,000 for ladies. Now, now here's one of the, the, the hard things about words. It is they're so common that they kind of lure us to sleep. That they're so common and so mundane that, that in thinking about them, we would all think, well, they couldn't be that powerful. They're so ordinary. And that's the precise thing that makes them powerful. The fact that they fill up the mundane in our life. See, the mundane is all you have in life. Do you know that? Like the mundane is like 99.99% of your life and the mundane is filled with words. And because the mundane is 99.9% of your life and filled with words, that's precisely the reason that words are so powerful. It's because they're everywhere. You don't get away from words. You don't get away from speaking. You don't get away from communicating. It's everywhere and that's why it's so powerful. Now to help us get a sense of that, um, Proverbs 18.21 helps us. Proverbs 18.21 tells us, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, isn't that something? That your tongue, your words actually have the power to bring about life into another human being. That God graces words and gifts words with that sort of incredible power. This is how intimacy, trust, all of those things are developed in our life. This is the unique power of words. But like any of God's good gifts, Whenever sin infects them and distorts them, they now have incredible power for for damage, right? It's not just life that's in the power of the tongue. It's also death that's in the power of the tongue. Words can do incredibly deep damage to another human being. I was reading this story here recently of a lady in Los Angeles who committed suicide. And she left a suicide note behind and it had two words on it. 
Here was her suicide, here was her suicide note. It said this. They said, words are weighty, aren't they? Words don't have a, a delete button that, that kind of goes after them. They have a really long shelf life, can inflict incredibly deep pain into another human being's heart. Now, now here's the, the issue with words. They're not only you know, a precious gift, they're not only powerful, but we all have a problem with words. This is how James says it in James chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. James says this, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Charles Spurgeon, when he's talking about the tongue and our words, he says this about them. He said, if all men's sins were divided into two bundles, so just take all the sin in your life and let's just put them in two stacks. Here's one stack of all your sin. Here's the other stack of all your sin. He goes on to say this, half of them would be sins of the tongue. This is how pervasive the problem with, with our words are. The problem with our tongue is it affects you and it affects me. And in light of that, wouldn't we do well to think through our words? Wouldn't we do well to allow Jesus to counsel us, to speak into us, to, to inform us about words? And, and if we're wanting that this morning and ultimately to change our heart that, that our words come from, and if we want that th this morning, if that's your desire this morning, I think a great place to start is in the ninth commandment. And here's what the ninth commandment says. For, for all those who are willing to come to it, open hands, receiving from God, good counsel about words, the ninth commandment goes like this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Some translations might just say it real short and sweet. You shall not lie. Now, let me just stop here, and let's start by getting its, the, kind of the biblical origins and the context for this commandment. So when you're, when you're thinking about the specific context of the ninth commandment, it's important that you go back into the original context that it was written to. And the original context it was written to had a very underdeveloped legal system. So, so they did not have so much of what we would enjoy in our legal system today. And not that our legal system is perfect, it's far from perfect, but it is much better than they, they had. If, if you were charged with a crime back in their day, when this, when this uh, commandment was written, you were in such a vulnerable position, such a vulnerable position. There was no sort of, of uh, standards that were around what it meant to like present evidence for, for a person to be able to make a defense. Uh, many times a person would never even get the chance to make a defense. To, to give the, the reason why they thought the, the, the charge against them was false. They would never even get that. There was no forensic evidence at the time. There was no like, let's make sure the blood stuff matches up. Let's make sure the DNA matches up. There was none of that. So at the end of the day, they had a legal system that was really dependent upon one person's word against another. Now imagine how scary that could be at times. You get charged with a crime and, and the, the person that, that is saying it, it's just your word against their word. That's a very vulnerable position, isn't it? Now, into that sort of undeveloped, very vulnerable sort of a position, the, the law of God is given. And the law of God is, is gives some sense of stability for the person being charged. Gives some sense of protection for the person being charged. So let me just give you some um, kind of examples of how the law of God does this. So first of all, the law of God, kind of more generally, like this is Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, makes it clear that one witness is not enough that you're gonna to have to have at least two or three witnesses before that charge is going to stand up. 
So it's not just going to be he said versus she said. We're going to have to have more than that. That's Deuteronomy 19.15. The, the ninth commandment makes sure that when a person does bring a charge against another person, that they're telling the truth. God is bringing great gravity in the ninth commandment to when you bring a charge against someone else, when you're on the stand and you're, you're presenting your case for why this person did that or didn't do that. He is bringing great gravity to telling the truth in that moment. And then it goes on in, in uh, Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 and 19, to, to give this scenario. If a man is found, you know, bringing a charge against another or, or verifying the charge that is brought against another, and it's found out that that person is lying, then the charge that was going, or the, the punishment that was going against the man charged, that becomes the, the punishment of the person lying. And all of that was meant to protect the person being charged, to give some sort of like protection for the person in that very vulnerable position of trying to defend themselves. So the law of God is written for this context, to, br to bring that sort of, of protection, to make sure that there's justice being served, not injustice. To make sure at the end of the day that justice wins. That's the context of the ninth commandment. Now, I want to kind of go from there now and bring it forward to kind of our everyday sort of living now. Okay, that, that's, what, that's the, the primary context of the ninth commandment. But the ninth commandment covers much more than that. And to see the much more that it covers, you need to go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. <clears throat> Now, when talking about the Ten Commandments, it's important that we get in one of the rules of interpreting the Ten Commandments. We've talked about this multiple times. It's the rule of categories. Okay, so most of the time when the Ten Commandments are written, each commandment is dealing with the worst particular sin in that category of sin. And by, go, by going ahead and like addressing that worst sin in that category, it's addressing everything else in the category. That's the rule of categories, that everything in the category of that sin is being addressed in that commandment. Now, Paul helps us see this in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4, starting in verse 29, Paul says it like this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, now Paul is giving us a helpful grid to interpret the ninth commandment. A helpful grid to make sense of how does the ninth commandment, you know, you know, how does it press itself into our life? How do we bring the ninth commandment to bear in our life? And let me just give you the two big kind of sides of this that Paul is showing us here. Here's the first side. When, when Paul is addressing the ninth commandment, here's what he's saying. Here's what he's prohibiting. He's saying that your words shouldn't be corrupt. Okay, now it's interesting. In verse uh, 28, Paul deals with the eighth commandment. The thief should no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he'll have something to give to someone in need. Okay, that's dealing with the eighth commandment. Now you get to verse 29 and he's dealing with the ninth commandment and here's how he frames the ninth commandment. He doesn't just say here in Ephesians uh, you know, 4, don't lie, don't bear false witness. He gets to the whole category of sins of the tongue. He's addressing the whole lot of how we abuse words and misuse words. And he says it like this. Here's the whole category. Let, let me give it a broad kind of stroke of how the ninth commandment applies to our life. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. See, Paul is showing us that the ninth commandment prohibits more than just lying when you're, you know, you're, you're, basically making a charge against someone else. He's saying it's much bigger than that. It catches the whole category of sins of the tongue. He's saying no corrupting talk should come out of your mouth. Now the question becomes, what is corrupt talk? What, what is that? When it's prohibiting corrupt talk, what is Paul talking about? 
I love how one author puts this. He says it this way. Now just hear this woman and think this through. He says, here's corrupting talk. He says, Paul's referring to any and all communication that deters growth in godliness. Any speech that hinders the cultivation of godly relationships. Any words that have a deadening or dulling effect on the soul of another. Now let's just stop right there for just a moment. I'm going to read that one more time and just allow, like, allow God to illuminate this for you. Just hear this from the Lord right now. Here's what's being prohibited in the ninth commandment. All corrupting talk. All communication that deters growth in godliness. Your growth, someone else's growth. Any speech that hinders the cultivation of godly relationships. Any speech that makes relationships not work. Any speech that drives a wedge between two people. Any speech that would, that would aggravate two people that hinders the cultivation of godly relationships. Any words that have a deadening or dulling effect on the soul of another. That's what's prohibited in the ninth commandment. Now let me just give you some of, some of the, the categories you could think about this in. What kind of speech deadens the soul of another? What, what kind of speech would, would hinder the, the cultivation of godly relationships, would hinder growth in godliness? Here would just be some of the sins that would be kind of mixed into corrupt talk. Presenting false evidence would be one. Calling wrong right would be one. Calling something that's right wrong. Forgery. Concealing the truth. Remaining silent when you should speak the truth. Speaking the right thing at the wrong time or in the wrong way. Twisting truth to a wrong meaning. Lying. Slandering. Gossiping. Exaggerating. Rash and harsh judgments flattering, hiding or excusing sin when confronted. Like part of what our word should be is like an avenue to confess our sin when we're confronted with sin. And when we don't do that, it's a breaking of the ninth commandment. It's corrupt talk. Unnecessarily harping on the weaknesses of others, gossiping, listening to gossip, and not keeping a promise. See, all of that is caught in the ninth commandment. That's the cat, that the ninth commandment is the category of sins of the tongue. And all of those are just some of the examples of sins of the tongue. Now, let me just uh, detail two of these. Let's just linger over two of these just really briefly. The first one is lying. Now, I, I want you to think about lying in your own life. This is a really uncomfortable thing to do, but if you'll be honest with yourself and watch yourself, here, here's one of the things you're going to find out about yourself. You lie and you lie a lot. That's an uncomfortable thing to know about yourself, isn't it? That, that you lie, and you don't just lie, but you lie a lot. If anyone else lied to you like you lied to you, here's what you would say about them. They're a liar. Now, we don't like to think about ourselves that way, but that's exactly, if, if, we're, if we're applying the, the sort of grid that we look at other people with, and we applied it to our own heart, that's what we would say about us, that we're liars. Now, it was interesting. Here recently, Laura and I were eating uh, dinner with a couple friend of ours. And over dinner, we were talking about, uh, they have a son, and one of their sons is just overtly lying to him. I mean, it's just like bold-faced, like has no problem, you know, lying. 
and uh, that we were talking about ways of addressing that and those sort of things. Um, when, when the boy's mom, the, the other couple, the, the wife, when she said, and you know, here's been the most convicting, convicting thing of everything, is as I'm watching this, God is illuminating just how often I lie. That I lie, and I lie a lot. And in that moment, can I just tell you what, what I felt in that moment? <sighs> that is so refreshing to hear someone admit that. It's so refreshing to hear someone actually pay attention to it, see it, and then admit that about themselves. And I think if you would look at your own life, you would see that. If, I'm going to say this one more time. If you applied the grid that you look at other people with in terms of how they speak the truth to you, if you applied that to your own heart, you would, you would count yourself a liar. That's how you would talk about yourself. And lying takes a lot of different forms. It take, it's big lies, it's little lies, it's white lies, it's half-truths, it's flatteries. They're shading the truth to make, it look, you know, to make us look better than we actually are in a situation. They're saying something that's technically true, but leaves so much out that it's not true. There's exaggerating our accomplishments or another's failures. There's misleading. There's misquoting. I mean, it, it is a big category of thing when we talk about lying. Now hear this. This is the reason that it's such a big deal to God. It's not so much because we're lying. I mean, that is a big deal, but that's not the reason it's such a big deal to God. The reason lying is such a big deal to God is that every time we lie, big lie or small lie, we are saying and telling a big lie about God. Titus chapter one, verse two says this about God, that he never lies. And as his representatives, as his image bearers, as people who have been gifted with the ability to communicate like God communicates by speaking, as his image bearers, as his representatives, every time we tell a lie, big or small in our life, about whatever you're talking about, every time we do that, we are ultimately telling a lie about God. That's the reason it's such a big deal. This is the reason that God puts it in the Ten Commandments. This is the reason God highlights it the way he does because it's telling a lie about God. Now just hear that. Every time something less than true comes out of your mouth, more than you are lying about the thing you're talking about, you are lying about God who never lies, who cannot lie. That's the reason lying is such a big deal. Let's linger over one more gossip. After a decade and a half of working in the church, I am fairly convinced that gossip is unlike any other sin in the church in its capacity to rip to shreds a church family. It is unlike any, any, other, any other sin. It has a unique way of ripping apart a gospel culture. It has a unique way of making a culture of a church unsafe for people to talk about where they really are. Because they're always wondering what is really going on. What, what are those people really saying? It absolutely rips a gospel culture to shreds. But one of my friends says it this way. He says, do you know how many people it takes to split a church? Not half the congregation. Here's how many it takes to split a church, he says. Just two. One to start spreading the fiery negativity and another not to confront that behavior as the sin that it is. Are you seeing, that's how dangerous gossip is for a church. It is that threatening to a church. It's that deadening to a church. It fits under the category of corrupt talk. Now, I just want to just pause here and linger for a second. I'm going to ask you to help us. We want to have a gospel culture 
We don't want to just believe gospel doctrine. We want that gospel doctrine expressed in a culture that reflects that doctrine. That's what we want for our church family. Don't you want that, by the way? We want that, don't we? So in light of that, I'm going to ask you to do two things for me in terms of gossip. Number one, pay attention to gossip and slander in your own life. Just pay attention to that. Most of us are totally unaware that we are gossiping every day. Pay attention to gossip and slander. Pay pay attention to the words that come out of your mouth in terms of how they talk about other people. And secondly, don't listen to gossip and slander. Don't, see, there's two ways to break the ninth commandment in terms of gossip. One is by being the one gossiping and the other is by being the one listening to it without correcting it. Both of those ways are equal in their breaking of the ninth commandment. Doing it or listening to it. Both are considered gossip. Uh, One of my friends, his name is Ray Ortland. He goes on to say this about gossip. Rather than listening to it, he says this. "Here's, Here's an alternative to listening to gossip. When that moment comes up and someone else is talking about someone else, here, here's the moment. It's the defining moment. He says, here's the alternative. If a person approaches you and starts criticizing someone else, you can smile and interrupt and say, time out. I don't want to be involved in this. But the person you're talking about is right over there on the other side of the room. Let's you and I go right now and you tell that person to their face what you're telling me. Are you good with that? Now listen to what he says. If you will have the courage to obey God at that moment of temptation, our churches will be safe places where people never have to wonder what's really going on. They can relax and enjoy themselves and grow in Christ. Now, don't you want a church like that? Where you don't have to wonder what's going on? Man, I want a church like that. I want to work for a church like that. I want to be careful about my words to help create a church like that. And I'm going to ask you to help me in that. Can can we all be on the same team in terms of that? And how we pay very close attention to our words and not gossiping or slandering. And on the other side, that we're very careful not to listen to it. This is all corrupt talk. This is all in the prohibition side of the ninth commandment. Now let's get to the other side. So if that's what God is prohibiting, corrupt words, what is it that God is saying do? See, every, every commandment has you know, two sides to it. There is a don't do side, the prohibition, and there is a do side. This is what God is proactively calling us to in this commandment. So the question becomes, what is God proactively calling us to? Answer. Words should not be corrupt. Here's what words should be. Words should be redemptive. That's what our words should be. God has gifted us with words so that they could be redemptive, so that they could be used by God for the good of other people. And and this is what Paul is telling us. He says, your words should not be corrupt. Let nothing corrupt come out of your mouth. But, here's the pro side. Here's the positive side. But only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That's what words are for. God has given you words so that they could build people up. So that they could fit the moment. So that they could impart grace to everyone around you. That's why God has given you the ability to speak to communicate, is so that God would give you a redemptive way to be used in other people's lives. That's what words are for. Just think about the moment of gossip. Here's one of the ways I hear people talk about gossip and think about gossip in in all sorts of wrong categories. A lot of times people will think like this. Okay, well, I'm not going to gossip. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go right over there to that person. I'm going to tell them right now how I feel. 
that is still not redemptive. See, we live in a country that like free speech is the, the thing, right? That, that like we live in a country that really values, you can say whatever you wanna say, whatever your opinion is, however you feel, you go about it. If you're a Christian, that is not your law. See, it, it is not only unwise to live that way, to, whatever I feel, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go tell them about it right now. It's not only unwise, this is why Proverbs, uh, it, it clearly says it's unwise. A fool give, or it says a fool gives full vent to their anger. A wise man quietly holds it back. Now say on that. It's saying, that here's, here's what a fool does in their life. Everything they feel, they go and say it. But here's what a wise man does. Most of what they feel, they don't say. Because it would be foolish and unredemptive to say it. See, this idea of free speech, we've got the right to say whatever we want to say. I'm going to go over there and tell that person exactly what I feel right now. That is not only unwise for a Christian, it is wrong for a Christian. It is sin in the life of a Christian. See, what, what, should, what should provide the grid for, am I going to go over and say this to this person or not, is not a, man, I need to get this off my chest, so I need to go tell them, you know, my peace of mind. That's not the grid. The, the grid is this. Would this be helpful to this human being who has a soul for me to say this? If the answer is yes, you should say it. If the answer is no to that question, you should not say it. See, the, the, the grid is not, man, I need to get this off my chest for my sanity's sake. That's wrong. If that's your grid, you're going to say a lot of really dumb things, a lot of really sinful things. The grid is, would this word be redemptive for this person? Would it be helpful for this person? Can I speak this in such a way where they can hear it and this be good for them? That's the grid with our words. Our words are meant to be redemptive. This is the reason God has given you the ability to communicate for redemption's sake. Now, Paul tells us three things about redemptive words. Let me just run through these really quickly here. Three things about redemptive words. Here's the first thing. Redemptive words are affirming. They're affirming. They build up. Do you see that in verse 29? But only such as is good for building up. If your words aren't about building up, you probably shouldn't say them. If your words don't have the end goal of building up, you should not say them. Words are, God has gifted you with words for the sake of building up those around you. That's why God has gifted you with the ability to speak. Um, and by the way, this is one of the things the Lord has really been working on me in over the last few years. I had a guy give me a book, and I want to actually recommend this to you. I would love for everyone in our church to read it. It's called Practicing Affirmation. And it has been so convicting for me and so helpful in giving me a grid for what does it mean to actually have words that build others up. A guy named uh, Sam Crabtree wrote it. He is deeply theological. So this is not some surface level, weird, self-esteemy thing. It, it's, he's deeply theological, but very practical in ways where he's trying to help us learn what our words are for, uh, how we can build other people up with our words. And so more importantly than the book, though, I want you to, to think about your words. And let me ask you this question with your words. Do your words consistently edify and build up those around you? And just think about your words. Do they consistently edify and build up the, the people that God has providentially placed around you? See, here are two basic assumptions every Christian should live every day with. Assumption number one, Jesus is at work in everyone. Amen? That's assumption one. Assumption number two, Part of what it means to serve those around us is to point out where and how Jesus is at work in them. Assumption one, Jesus is at work. Assumption two, 
we need to see how Jesus is at work, even if the person doesn't know Jesus. There are, there are traces of God in them. And, and part of what it means to serve them is by finding those traces of God, those evidences of grace, and we point those things out. Every time we see there's something that grace would produce, that's an evidence of the grace of God at work in their life. There is a, there's a reflection of the image of God in them. Every time we see that, our words are meant to be the vehicle to help them see that. And by the way, don't you need help in seeing that in you often? We all do, right? See, words are meant to help one another see all the ways that God is at work in them. And by the way, that is different than flattery. Flattery is telling lies to someone, right? Godly affirmation is telling the truth to someone. It's seeing something that is commendable in them and actually commending what's commendable. It's seeing an evidence of grace in them and actually pointing out that is an evidence of grace. That's not because of how good you are. That's because of the work of Jesus in you that you're doing that. That's godly affirmation. And this is what our words are meant to be to, to other people. If you're married in the room, I want you to look at me. There are few things as important as godly affirmation in marriages. If your, marriages, if your marriage is void of that, you can just bet that your marriage is really struggling. Sam Crabtree, I heard him do a little podcast on his book, Practicing Affirmation, and he made this comment in that little podcast. He said, in 30 years of ministry, been in pastoral ministry for a long time, in 30 years of ministry, he said this, I've never seen a marriage fall apart, fail, or end up in divorce who consistently practiced affirmation. I'm going to say that one more time. 30 years of ministry, I've never seen a marriage fall apart, fail, or end up in divorce who consistently practiced affirmation. Affirmation is not the most important thing in your marriage. There's other things that are more important, like you being alive. But, but without it, you can bet that your marriage will be far from what God wants it to be. See, part of what you are meant to be if you're a spouse to another human being is a person who commends the commendable, who finds all the little evidences of grace in their life and points them out and says, that is God at work in you. Do you see that? Because I see that. I mean, this is what a marriage is meant to be. As a spouse, this is what you're meant to be. You're meant to build up your, 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 other, you know, your spouse, your husband, your wife. If you're a parent, affirmation is crucial to parenting. It's part of what gives you a voice into your child's life. It's part of how your children grow up knowing what, what they are good at. So th this is all part of parenting. It is vital, if, you know, if you're a parent. If you do not consistently practice affirmation as a parent, here's what it will do. It will rob you of the platform to correct your children. Affirming your child, pointing out what is commendable and commending them, is how you gain a platform to have the, the voice into their life to actually correct them when they need to be corrected. And if you're a parent for very long, you know you need to do a lot of correcting, right? So if you need to do a lot of correcting, you better do that times a lot more affirming, a lot more commending what is commendable. This is so altered the way I parent. One of my goals in parenting is this. I want to be the most affirming voice in my kids' lives. And here's why. I want to have the best voice to correct when it needs to happen. But I want to be the most affirming voice. Uh, we had a moment last night where um, a couple of our boys were in the backyard and I was watering our garden. And anytime I go to the backyard, they all run out the door. I want to help. I want to help. So they grab the water hose and they're, you know, they're making everything a lot more difficult as they help. You know, That moment's going down. 
And in the moment of them helping, I just bent down and I looked at him in the eye and I said, you know what I love about you? This is part of what I get, to, man, every time you do what you just did, I get to see God at work in you, that heart of service, how you wanna help me. That, that so ministers to me and teaches me and I wanna be more like that. That is godly affirmation. That is a lot of what parenting is. It's a lot of what parenting needs to be. This is how you gain a voice into your kid's life. Man, I wanna be the most affirming voice in their life. If you wanna be a great friend, this is part of what it means to be a good friend to other people. Without affirmation, can I just tell you, you are a cruddy friend. If you don't use your words to build up other people, to affirm, to commend what is commendable, to build up, if you don't do that, you're just not gonna be a life-giving friend. See, part of what it means to be a good life-giving friend to other people is when you see the evidence of grace in them, just traces of, of the image of God in them, you point those out and help them see that. That is part of what it means to be a good, godly, life-giving friend to another human being. And by the way, all of this is really, really biblical. The, the writer of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up love and good deeds in one another. So this is how you do that. It, it's by pointing out what is commendable and commending that. By building them up in that way. This is how we stir up one, one another in love and good deeds. Can I just give you this, this homework? If you'll just slide this in your pocket and just do this, I, I would, it would totally change the culture of our church if we get this down. If you will set a reminder, maybe it's on your phone, to once a day remind you, think about another human being, think about what is commendable in that human being, and go and commend it right now. Will you just set a reminder on your phone, just something that every day will remind you to do that? Think about someone else. Think about what is commendable in them and commend that. Show that that is a trace of God in them and how it ministers to your own heart. If we would get good at doing that as a church family, it would totally change the vibe and the ethos of our church. So redemptive words are affirming. Here's the second thing about redemptive words. Redemptive words match the moment. You see that in verse 29? They fit the occasion. It reminds me of Proverbs 25, 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. But don't we all want to have appropriately fitting words? See, it's not enough to speak the right thing. We have to speak the right thing in the right way at the right time. That's what it means to have redemptive words. The right words at the right moment in the right way, that's redemptive words. And you know what that requires? Something we're not very good at. It requires us to listen. I can be so bad at listening. It requires us to listen. Because if, listen, if we don't listen, we're not gonna know where this person is. Therefore, we will not know what they need right now. We'll just start blurting out what we think they need. And so often what we think they need is not what they need until we'll stop and listen. Actually hear, ask questions about them. We're never going to know where they are and what they need right now. Words that fit the moment, that, that's what we're after. And do you know what that means for a lot of us? It means that a lot of us in conversations need to stop talking. So sometimes the most redemptive word we'll say is the one we didn't speak. See, sometimes what it means to, to, to have redemptive words to someone else, it, it means that we know when to speak. And some of us need to know that. There is a time to speak. There's a time to actually say and engage and go there. And there is a time not to speak. And some of us need to get that down. 
That there is a time when we absolutely need to be silent, when we need to keep our mouths shut and let the Holy Spirit speak. This is what it means to, to have words that match the moment. Um, a, a week and a half, or actually, let's see, it was two weeks ago this, two weeks ago today, we had just gotten word uh, that our first foster placement, if, if you haven't kind of been inside of our life for the last, you know, several months, nine months ago, we got our first foster placement. Twin boys, just, I mean, they're just precious. And uh, got word a couple of weeks ago that they are about to be leaving. I'm going to try to keep this together. And two weeks ago, um, in the four-year, brushed by Brandon McDivitt. I don't know if Brandon's in this service. Is he in this service? No, maybe in the next service. And uh, I told him that. I know he has a heart for that. And uh, let him know that. And he said, uh, man, can I just come by this week and uh, stop 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and just pray for you? And so uh, that Monday night, he stopped by, and he walked in, and he said, uh, you know, I don't even know why I'm here. I have no idea. I think it's probably just to cry with you and to pray with you. And can I just say, that was words that matched the moment, words that totally matched the moment. I mean, I'm just praying that God would give us a sense of wisdom to know that there are times when, like, correction, and there are times when truth needs to be spoken. And there are other times when all we need to do is just pray and cry with people. That's words that match the moment. This is part of what it means to be redemptive, for our words to be redemptive in the lives of other people. And thirdly, redemptive words carry grace. Redemptive words, I want you to think about your words like this. They are meant to carry cargo. Okay? So, so they're meant to be packed with something. And your words are meant to be packed with something in particular. And here's the cargo that your words are meant to be packed with. The cargo they're meant to carry is the cargo of grace. That, that, that's what they're meant to carry to the lives of other people. That they're meant to take the cargo of grace to transport them into the lives of other people so that other people can have that grace. That is what our words are meant to do for other people. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he said it like this. He said, and I think this will be on the screen for you. He said, the Christian needs another Christian. Now listen to what he said. This is so insightful. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's words to him. The Christ in his own heart is weaker sometimes than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. Now, do you see what he's saying there? He, and if you've, been, if you've been trying to follow Jesus for any amount of time, you know this is true. You've seen this play out. There are moments when you know what you should believe, but you just can't believe it. I mean, for the life of you, you just can't muster up the faith to actually believe what you know you should believe. And then God puts a dear brother or a dear sister beside you. That they know, this dear brother or dear sister, that their words are meant to carry grace. And in that moment, they do carry grace. And they speak to you the exact same thing that you know you should believe, but you can't believe it. And in them speaking it to you, you know what sometimes happens? You can actually believe it. 
That's the amazing thing about Christian community. This is one of the things that a community of people is meant to be for one another. We're meant to sit beside other people, remind one another of the good news of Jesus to help one another believe that. And there are times that hearing it from another human being is the thing we need to actually believe it. It carries the grace we need to actually live in it. I was reminded by this story about William Wilberforce, one of my favorite guys in church history. He gave years and years and years of his life to trying to get slavery abolished in England and really throughout the world. At one point, he was dejected, wanted to give up, wanted to quit. And uh, he was just about to do that, about to, about to give up. And, and John Wesley was on his deathbed and wrote a letter to William Wilberforce. And in that letter, he said this, if God is for him, who can be against him? On that one day, oh, that one day slavery, even in America, would be abolished. Go on in doing good, William, in the name of God. That little note right there actually spurred William Wilberforce to keep on going. Six days later, John Wesley dies. 45 years later, in 1833, slavery was abolished in New England. That's redemptive words. That's words that are carrying grace to another people. And here's the truth. Even the, the, mo even the strongest saints need the redemptive words of other people. Need the redemptive words of other saints. We all need that. Okay, now here's what I want to do to finish. Last thing about words. Words reveal our deep need of Jesus. And I just want to kind of finish here and, and we'll be done here. Words reveal our deep need for Jesus. And I want you to turn to Romans 8. You know, the, the truth about our words is they show that we are all really messed up, right? I mean, in, in Matthew 12, Jesus makes it really clear that we don't have word problems, we have heart problems. And all of our word problems are really just symptoms of our heart problem. Our, all of our words that come out of our mouth are, are really just a, our messed up heart you know, finding breath through words. This is the problem that we all have. Word problems are heart problems. So our words are showing us just how corrupt our hearts are. Our words show us just how in need of the grace of God we are, the transforming grace of God, that the grace of God that would change us, the, the grace of God that would melt hardness in us, the grace of God that would, would thaw that ice in us. We all need that. You need that today. I need that today. We all need that. And so do you know the only thing that's going to melt that hardness in you? Going to break through the resistance that we all have inside of us right now? It's going to actually change our hearts to where we will speak redemptively to other people. The only thing that will do that is for us to hear God's redemptive words to us. That alone has the capacity to do that. And here's what I want to do to finish this morning. Romans 8 is packed with the redemptive words of God to us. And I'm going to paraphrase most of this chapter. and just, I'm just going to paraphrase it and just read it to you. And I want you to hear this as God's affirming words to you this morning. God's redeeming words to you this morning. Regardless of where you are, I have no idea where you are this morning. But I know that every one of us need to hear these redeeming words from God our Father. Romans 8. The point of Romans 8 is to convince us that God actually loves us. Verse 1. Hear, hear God the Father say this to you. Because of Jesus, I no longer hold your sin against you. Yes, you've sinned. Yes, you've rebelled. Yes, you deserve death. But every last drop of your condemnation is gone. Verse 2. Let me tell you this again. You have been set free from the law of sin and death. Condemnation is gone. It's gone forever. Verse 3. 
Here's why your condemnation is gone. Just hear God the Father say this to you. Here's why it's gone. I've sent my beloved son to a cross and all the condemnation that you deserve, all the condemnation that your sin deserves, it came crashing down on my beloved son, Jesus. Can you just see how much I love you? Verse four, here's why your condemnation's gone. I sent my son not just to die for you, but to live for you. He perfectly fulfilled my every last requirement so you, imperfect as you are, can be mine. Verse 12, here's how much I love you. I didn't just send my son to accomplish your salvation. I sent my spirit to personally apply it to your heart. My spirit now dwells in you. I am with you. I'll never leave you. Verse 13, do you need help right now dealing decisively with sin? Do you need help putting sin to death in your life? Right now through my spirit, I'll help you. Verse 14, because I live in you, just hear this from God the Father, because I live in you, I will lead you and I will guide you. If, if you need wisdom and guidance today, why don't you just ask me for help? Verse 15, let me tell you how much I think of you. I've adopted you. I chose you, set my affection on you, brought you into my family. I'm calling you mine. For the rest of your days, you can call out Abba, Father, to me. Because me, God, Sovereign God, I'm yours. 16, there's going to be times when you doubt your mind, that you really doubt that you're a son or a daughter of mine. In those moments, just listen to my voice. I'll convince you. Verse 17 and 18, as my child, I want to remind you that you've got an incredibly bright future coming. You have an inheritance and it's so good that language can't articulate it, can't capture it. It's so big and so bright that it's going to make every moment of life in this fallen world feel small and insignificant. Verse 26, and because I live in you through my spirit, I'll promise to help you in your weaknesses because I know you're weak. You know you're weak. For, for example, when you're so broken and desperate that you don't even know what to pray Here's what I'll do for you. My spirit will intercede on your behalf. Verse 28, when life in this fallen world is so painful and gut-wrenching, when you have no answers for life, when you're kept up at night, when you're kept up by circumstances that break your hope, that tempt you to despair, that make you believe that your life is over, all hope is lost, know this, that I'm your daddy and hope's never lost. I'll promise to take the entirety of your life, good, bad, and the ugly, and turn it into good for you. Verse 29 and 30. Do you know why you can trust me in this? Here's why. I'm the God who created you, chose you, saved you, who's committing to making you into the image of Jesus, and who will one day restore to you the life you've always longed for. Did you, verse 31. Did you know that if I'm in you, that I'm for you, and it doesn't matter who's against you. Verse 32, do you know how for you I am? Just listen to God say this. Here's how for you I am. I'm so for you that I'd lose my beloved son to gain you. And if I'd give you my beloved son, wouldn't I give you everything else you're gonna need in your life? Verse 33 and 34, when your conscience is overbearing, 
when Satan, it's just being overrun by Satan, when he's crushing and condemning you, just remember, I've justified you. In Jesus, it's just as if you had never sinned. And in Jesus, it's just as if you had always obeyed. Verse 35, and do you really think anything could separate you from my love? Anything. Verse 37, it can't. Nothing in this life can. Death can't. Angels can't. Rulers can't. Things present and things to come can't. Those with power can't. Height can't. Depth can't. My love for you is so deep and so durable and that nothing in heaven, nothing on earth can separate me from you. Amen. Let's pray together. We're going to respond through song, and I want to give you just a moment here to allow the Spirit to press into you the things that would be most helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be helpful. And I want to make it clear that for these redemptive words of Romans 8 to apply to you, something very important has to happen. There has to be a moment when you turn from your sin and throw your life upon Jesus. This is what the Bible calls repentance. And when we do that for the first time, the Bible says that God saves us, that God brings us into his family. And now all these redemptive words apply to us. And there are some in this room this morning that you need to do that. You need to turn from your sin and throw your life upon Jesus who is so ready to save and rescue and redeem you. And if that has happened in your life, there are many of us who right now and this morning, there is serious repentance that needs to happen for corrupt words. Words that do not build up, words that do not match the moment, words that do not carry grace. And this is your opportunity to do that. To confess those to God, to thank God for forgiving grace, and then to ask and receive from God transforming grace that would help us live differently. When I think about us right now, here, here is my prayer for us. Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. So, Father, would you make that, would you make that true? Would you make our words acceptable? God, would you make our hearts more like Jesus? God, we need changed hearts. Our words show us that. And so, Father, now in this morning and this moment, would you do that? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.